Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Jessica Cisneros is having a moment. She's a 26-year-old lawyer from Laredo, Texas, and she's making her first bid for office in a district that stretches along the Mexican border and up toward San Antonio. That's a long way from Washington, but everyone is talking about this political newcomer as she runs for Congress. Elizabeth Warren calls her, quote, a Democrat that will be on the side of working people, not the side of big money and obstructionist Republicans. Emily's List is backing her, as is the Justice Democrats movement. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says Cisneros is, quote, going to fight for real people, not big corporate donors like the Koch brothers, Geo Group and Exxon. When Jessica is elected, not only will I no longer be the youngest person in Congress, I'll have a strong new ally in the fight for Medicare for all, getting corporate money out of politics and fixing our broken immigration system, end quote. What's striking is that Cisneros is not running for an open seat or taking on a Republican incumbent. She's running against a Democratic incumbent, Henry Cuellar, who ran his first campaign for public office almost a decade before Cisneros was born. The incumbent's a so-called blue dog Democrat who takes lots of money from the private prison industry, votes with the NRA most of the time, and often breaks with fellow Democrats to side with President Trump. Yet he's backed by House Democratic leaders such as Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Cisneros is forcing Democrats to take sides as she mounts a classic challenge to the compromises that the party so frequently makes. We spoke to her in Laredo, and she is our guest this week on Next Left. Hey, Jessica Cisneros, thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Of course, happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. We've had a lot of young candidates on this podcast. In fact, a lot of young elected officials. But I think it's worth noting that at 26, you are in the running, if you win, to be perhaps the youngest member of the House. I am 26 years old. I actually didn't know I was, you know, in the running to be the youngest elected congresswoman until an interview early on in the campaign. I was very surprised to find that out. They asked me, like, so how do you feel knowing that you'd be the youngest? I was like, well, actually, this is the first time I'm hearing about that. So I don't know how I feel about it yet. <laughs> well, there have been some very young members of Congress. It's not unheard of. Some of the greatest members uh, have come to Washington very young. But you do have to be 25 to run. So you started considering this race just around the time you qualified. That's right. So my birthday's in May. We launched in June. So when I was thinking about this, I was 25 years old, as the Constitution requires. So I met that qualification for sure. You come at this contest from a very interesting background. You are a lawyer. You're also a former intern for the congressman you're running against which is an uncommon thing in politics, not unheard of, but pretty rare. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, prior to me launching the campaign and assembling our team here in, in the district, I was an immigration attorney and I was focusing on helping folks that are detained at the detention centers we hear so much about now in the news while they're facing their proceedings in front of an immigration judge. So I was helping in this program. I was working in this program that was basically the first in the nation public defender model for people in immigration court. So that was pretty exciting. My plan was, you know, to learn how that runs and bring it down here to South Texas. But my plans were cut short on that because I decided to run for Congress. And I interned for Congressman Cuellar back in 2014. 
I was an undergrad and it's very interesting to reflect back on that experience because especially now that I'm knocking on, on people's doors, because it took me having to go to Washington to find out what this guy I was about. myself a person that was, you know, a, a little bit more aware than the average person about politics. And I was very excited because I had obtained this fellowship that allowed me to intern in Washington, D.C. It was the first time I was going to move out of Texas um, for this. And I was I wanted to work somewhere um, that was going to have a direct impact for people back home. So to me, it just made sense to intern for my congressman. But as soon as I got there, I was shocked to find out how how conservative he really is. And how he basically, you know, bends over to the will of the Republican Party and his buddies. And to me, that just wasn't acceptable. I think the most shocking thing of it all, something that really stuck with me was the fact that he knew I was a constituent. I was the only intern that was from the district that that semester. And never once did he approach me as a constituent. Never once did he ask me or take two minutes to, you know, see what I thought the issues were back in our district, how we should be helping the people back home. And to me, it was like, if I'm in his office full time, nine to five every single day during the week, and he never once approached me that way, well, what's happening with the people back home that aren't in his office and he doesn't have access to as much as he has access to to me there in the office. And that's been the story um, as we've been knocking on doors where people are just tired of that absentee leadership. And I think for me, knowing that he was voting with Trump 70% of the time in the last Congress, and as I was facing frustration, being an immigration attorney under the Trump administration, you can imagine how heartbreaking of an experience that was, um, seeing how, you know, the clients and the families that I was working with were being torn apart. It got to a point where I was like, you know what, if the laws are the problem and this is happening because we have absentee leadership, then I'm going to listen to my community. They're asking me to run and I'll step up because they believe in me and I should believe in myself at that level too. You're from Laredo, Texas. I am from Laredo, born and raised here in our hometown, um, right on the river. The interesting thing is that the region you live in is a very democratic region. You have a democratic congressman, but as you point out, he frequently votes with Donald Trump. In these increasingly divided times, that's an uncommon thing. Why do you think there is that disconnect there? Yeah, so a little overview of our district, just to put it in context for folks that aren't familiar with Texas 28. So it's a district that runs from Northeast San Antonio down to Laredo, which you mentioned is my hometown. It is proud Laredo in here. And then down to Rio Grande Valley to the outskirts of McAllen and Mission. It takes about six hours to drive through it. It's a lot of ground to cover in three different areas of, of South Texas. And it's a 77% Latinx population here. Spanish is a default language for most folks, my family included. And as you mentioned, we're a very strong Democratic district. This is a district that approximately went to Hillary Clinton by 20 points in the last presidential election. In the Senate race between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz also went to Beto for, by approximately 20 points. And yes, there is, we're being represented by one of the most conservative Democrats in Congress. His brand of bipartisanship is basically giving Republican legislation the Democrat stamp of approval so that they can call it bipartisan. It's always him jumping to the Republican side and him never, Cuellar never bringing Democratic legislation. And people here are aware of that. But the thing is that in a district like this, where if you make it out of the Democratic primary, you're going to win in the general election because that's just how blue our district is. 
Goyar hasn't had a primary challenger in over a decade. And a lot of it is because he's leaning into these stereotypes that South Texas folks are super conservative and that we love the way things are. But I can tell you, people don't love working two or three jobs to put food on the table. We don't like having to go into Mexico to get basic you know, access to, to health care that we can actually pay for. So as we've been, you know, running in the past four and a half months, people are so excited that for the first time in 13 years, it's not just going to be Henry Cuellar's name on the ballot. Jessica Cisneros is going to be right there, too. In South Texas, there is, as you point out, an overwhelming Latinx population. You identify as the proud daughter of Mexican immigrants. And I think for listeners around the country, it's perhaps important to give them a sense of the border region. This is a place where families live on both sides of the river where people know these immigration and trade issues that the rest of the country talks about as an everyday experience. Definitely. So, I mean, yes, my family actually started off here in the United States. They came here because my sister needed urgent medical attention that it was a very high risk operation that no doctor in Mexico wanted to perform. So they found someone in Houston and that's how they started off here. Uh, My parents were farm workers prior to the 1986 immigration reform, which is how they were able to obtain their permanent resident status. And then they moved on to Laredo because, like you said, I have a lot of family on the other side, on the Mexican side. Um, So they wanted to be closer. And then I was born and raised here in Laredo. And this area of the country is so cross-cultural. My childhood park is literally right next to the Rio Grande River, where you could see Mexico right on the other side. Anywhere you go here, any restaurant you go to, the first language they're going to speak to you is Spanish. At home, that's what people talk about. I think about 60% of folks, you know, speak Spanish in, in their home. And all of that was really what influenced me to be an advocate for my community, for people that look like me and my parents and my neighbors. And, you know, knowing my parents' immigrant history, knowing how this environment is really a blend of Mexican and American cultures. And being truly bilingual, all those skill sets were just geared to me being a a lawyer and an advocate. But yes, this is a wonderful area of the country that unfortunately, I think, especially under this administration, has been portrayed in a negative light. I think when people come down here and visit and look at the river, they're surprised to find out that it's an outlet mall <laughs> um, because because for us, it's like, you know, this is where our parks are. We just take walks around here. Like it, it's really some of the safest, you know, areas of of our of our state and, and country, really. Um, but unfortunately, it's been painted, you know, very negatively as a place of crisis when that's not the case. So I'm very happy that even I think one of the one of the good things that's come out of, of this campaign is that. We're giving a platform and we're using it to try to accurately describe our way of life down here in South Texas, that it's not what people perceive it to be, but we're just a bunch of hardworking folks that are just trying to get by and provide for our families. And all we ask for is that opportunity. But unfortunately, with the leadership that we've had now, it kind of seems like we don't even have that opportunity. So that's what we're fighting for. One of the great things about the online ads and the campaign videos you've made is the mix of Spanish and English in the ads and the fluidity with which you will be speaking in English and then switch over to a Spanish word or a couple of Spanish lines. That really is the language of the district, isn't it? 
Así es, for us down here, man, like we can we can switch between English and Español, like, and you know, quickly, because that's just how we talk down here. Um, even when I'm out with my cousins, you know, it's just us flipping naturally between English and Spanish. Like, we don't even think about it. Here, sometimes people speak to me in Spanish and I respond in English or the other way around, um, but we don't even notice it. You know, it's not something that we're actively thinking about. It's just the way of life that it is here. And and like you said, I, I think it's it, it really is just a blend of the two cultures. Um, and it's something very unique and special here. And when people ask me like how it is, you know, living in this area of the country, I always talk about, you know, my uncles playing, you know, softball and on the weekends and how they literally play on the side by on the riverbanks. And sometimes a home run means that the balls on another country <laughs> because that's how close that's how close it is um and that's just that's just the way of life down here um it's it's very it's a very beautiful blend of of our identity and i think the myself and and the people that live here reflect that but that's become challenging because of national politics when you have an administration in washington and a congress that is talking about building walls or is doing the detentions or is changing trade policy mangling trade policy all of this becomes very very real on the border doesn't it definitely and i think what people here are upset about is that we've been absent from the table when we're, we're having these very important conversations whether it be about trade for example the USMCA Folks here, it's really concerning um, as I'm knocking on doors, talking to members in the community. For example, my father, uh, this is when I first realized how big of a pervasive problem it was. Um, he didn't even know that NAFTA was being revisited and he's been a truck driver for 30 years. And that got me curious. And I started asking more folks in the community that are, you know, supply chain managers, warehouse workers, other truck drivers. And it's scary to know that folks that are going to be directly impacted by these trade policies that are being negotiated out of Washington, they're not even aware that this is happening. The same thing with in terms of immigration, getting the wall built, it's going to be built here. Right. And people aren't happy about that. And instead of having a representative, someone that's going to actually be championing and being vocal about how much we don't want the wall in our backyards, we have somebody who's basically, you know, selling us out and voting to fund the wall. And I think up until now, uh, Congressman Guerra has been able to get away with that because he hasn't had a primary challenger. And it's very difficult to criticize somebody when there's no other choice. But now that there is, it's very inspiring to see people rallying around this campaign because they finally feel represented and reflected with the values that, that we're holding and championing. And again, this is a blue district. We should be having someone that's championing all of our democratic values instead of, you know, basically being wishy-washy and the Democratic Party, you know, being really happy when once in a while he throws a bone, right? We deserve better. And it's great to see how the community's been responsive to that. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done 
about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. One of the things I've noticed as I've reported along the border is that environmental issues are really big. Uh, So often, again, the national media has a handful of issues that they talk about. But in border communities, I've often had people raise a distinct range of environmental concerns. You've made those concerns, along with the Green New Deal, a big part of your campaign. And that's very relevant to the people you seek to represent. Environmental racism is a thing. And environmental issues are very personal for us down here. Um, I think a recent example of that was here in Laredo, Texas. We had a water boil notice for a couple of weeks where we had to boil our water before we knew it was safe to drink. And, you know, that was a result of terrible infrastructure that needs to be invested in so we can rebuild it and make sure we have clean water. Also, the fact that the Rio Grande River is our only source of water here and we need to make sure we're not polluting it because, If something happens to our river, we have no water and that's going to be chaos for our community. We don't know what we're going to do. Further south in in our district, in in Hidalgo County, um, I was a couple of weeks ago talking to this woman who led the charge in a, a lawsuit where there was a chemical plant established in the area of Mission, Texas. And as a result of the pollution and, and the toxic chemicals that were coming out of that, there's a, a lot of people in Mission that were born with birth defects, right? And obviously that it was put in a community of color. Um, a lot of these things are happening in communities that look like ours because of trade also being a very important part of our economy here. We're also not thinking about the environmental impacts. Um, And there's a lot of, you know, it's not uncommon to have elementary schools next to industrial parks where unfortunately kids are breathing in pollutants and toxins and that's affecting them and asthma being a, a pervasive issue. There's so many things, you know, that we need to work on. And I think for us, it's, and I'm, I'm very glad to be leading a team that's mostly composed of people from here from the district because we're able to talk about these challenges and issues when we're talking to voters because we live through them ourselves, right? And I think with policies, ideas like the Green New Deal, You know, usually we try to talk about unpacking what the policy means first and how it's going to affect us in our day to day here and then giving it a label. Right. And saying like, well, this is what the Green New Deal would, you know, address. Um, And I think that's been working great with the people here, because unfortunately, since we this is the first primary challenge, this is the first uh, competitive congressional race in a very long time. We haven't been having these conversations in a decade. Right. So it's great, like I said, to see us engaging the community and them feeling grateful that we're taking the time to do outreach and we're taking the time to engage them in these conversations because we have been left out for a very long time. Your campaign has been a very grassroots effort uh, down in the district. That's a big deal because you are running in a huge district, a district as large as some countries and much bigger than some states. Yeah, it has been definitely a grassroots effort from the very beginning. I mean, we're not naive, right? We know the the challenges that we're up against and we know that it's no small feat. But at the same time, hard work is one of the biggest values that we have here in South Texas. And we're not afraid of hard work. That's something that we've been doing, you know, our entire lives here. 
for us, again, I think it's just the reason why we've been getting a lot of momentum on the ground is because people want to see this kind of leadership in our communities. The fact that we're not taking any corporate PAC money, like that really resonates with voters, not only on the Democrat side. Sometimes we do run into the occasional Republican while we're out canvassing. It's a strong blue district, but there are some Republicans down here. And even they, they like the idea of not being beholden to corporate interests, you know, and I think that that's the transparency that folks want to see. And also the fact that we've proved that we can run a competitive race without having to take any of that corporate PAC money. In this last quarter, Cuellar outraised us by a bit, but it, it wasn't by a lot. And you're talking about somebody who's a 30-year career politician versus somebody that's you know been in this race for four months. And I think that sends a statement, You know, the fact that we didn't take any of that corporate PAC money and that we are running the race that we want to run um, and had an, envisioned and that we are doing it successfully. And that's why we've been able to get a lot of traction, at, you know, nationally, but more importantly in the district because of the fact that we're sticking to our values and not selling out is very important. I'm interested in the support you've attracted from around the country. You have earned endorsements from a sitting member of Congress, presidential candidate. This is pretty rare for someone challenging a Democratic incumbent. It doesn't happen very often. What people are suggesting is that this candidate, you, uh, running there in South Texas, has a potential to represent the district, of course, but also to add something to the national discourse. Yeah. And I think the reason why we've had a lot of support, you know, nationally is because, I mean, we're like I said, we're sticking to our values. We've got the talent. We got the potential down here in South Texas. And again, as someone that's leading a team made up of mostly South Texans, like that's been the story of our lives. Like a lot of people, maybe from the very beginning, just because of who we are and, you know, that we are working class, you know, brown folks from the border. A lot of people have not expected much from me, given like my background growing up. They underestimated me. But one thing that I take pride in is when people take bets on me, I, I shock them and I'm able to rise up to the challenge. And that's been the story for the other folks on, on my team as well. And that's the story that we're telling, you know, folks nationally as well is like bet on us and you're going to see the kind of work that we're putting into this campaign. They're going to be you're going to see the successes of it. And for us, it's been incredible to get the support from people like, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and Presley, Emily Sliss, you know, jumping on board as well. Um, and our very first endorsement of Justice Democrats, Sunrise Movement working, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And it's because they see, again, the potential of of our campaign, the fact that it's already moving folks in the district and, you know, getting them engaged for the first time in in, in years it's a powerful thing and it's great to have and count on their support because I think that's going to be the, the difference in the long run because we do have to, you know, make sure that we're meeting people at the doors at the level that we need to. That obviously takes time, that takes effort, that takes investment, but we're very lucky and blessed to have the support of folks that believe in us and are jumping in very early. And that translates also to um, support here on the ground um, where we've had leadership here also standing next to us. And then, you know, our volunteers, which are the heart and soul of this movement as well. There's a significance in another sense as well, because you're running in a primary. If you win that primary, you've built an organization, which I would presume you would certainly keep running at full steam going toward the November election. 
Texas is a state where it is often said uh, a moment will come when it flips to be a blue state, a state where a Democratic presidential candidate could perhaps win in November. So mobilization in the Valley, mobilization in South Texas, uh, that's a very huge deal going into a November election. That's right. And I think that's how this campaign fits into the larger conversation statewide and nationally as well. I always say that South Texas is key in turning Texas blue. So the infrastructure that we're setting up and the voter engagement that we're bringing in for us, obviously, one of our wins is going to be winning in in March. But I think the bigger victory is teaching ourselves how to organize not just around candidates, but around issues. Right. And that's something that we're hoping is going to remain even past our March 3rd primary. And this campaign couldn't have come at a better time because there was already this budding activism here in Laredo. The Valley and San Antonio are a little bit more organized, but obviously we're trying to do our part in making sure that voter turnout is going to be bigger than what it's been before. I think in the last presidential primary, it was hovering around 11 percent, which isn't a lot obviously. And for us, a big one is going to make sure that more folks are engaged and are inspired to go out and turn out to the polls. On this podcast, we often talk about the culture of the places where people are running, especially when they're folks like you who have deep roots, born and raised in their community. Tell us about the music scene in Laredo. If I was coming down there, who would you tell me to listen to? What singers, what artists should I uh, tune into? Yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't be a true Tejana if I didn't recommend Selena Quintanilla, right? Uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, we actually have a playlist that we came up uh, with at the very beginning of our campaign called Cambio para Texas 28. It's on our Spotify in case you want to look it up. There's some groups that we wanted to make sure that were highlighted, that were part of the district or were founded in the district. There are usually Tejano groups like Intocable, Duelo, and some other groups as well. There's a lot of Tejano culture still here. I mean, it, it's really a mix. I If people also ask me like, hey, so what's your favorite kind of music? Like, I'm also not able to provide a concrete answer because, again, you're talking about an area of the country that has a very blended c- culture. Um, so you could be listening to, you know, I don't know, something like Snoop Dogg and at the same time jamming out to like Vicente Fernandez and stuff like that. So I don't know. I think I think it's so broad and I think that's what makes it pretty beautiful. Hey, I I appreciate, Jessica, so much you joining us on Next Left. It's been wonderful to talk a little about your district and about your campaign. Thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me. I was really happy that, you know, I was able to, to be on Next Left. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Deboy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. 